Last week, we confronted perhaps a surprising notion that we all have a serious anger problem. And you said, well, how can that be? Maybe you're single. Maybe you just live at home with a cat. And maybe you just, your, your spouse is such a saint that you said, how could I ever have any problems in life? My children, they're such angels. My parents, they're so wonderful. How could I ever have any anger in my life? How dare you say such a thing? So I suggested that we all have a serious anger problem. Why? Because anger is rooted in frustrated desires. And we all, no matter our temperament, no matter the kind of personality that dominates us, we all have and all experience frustrated desires. And we discussed a very critical idea last week that you need desperately in your life to distinguish between needs and desires. I reminded you that if you are a Christian, you have everything you need because it's all found in Christ. You're longing for security. You're longing for significance. You're longing for a deep purpose for your life. You're longing for unconditional love are all found in Christ. And so with all your deepest needs met, what do you know about yourself? You know that when you move into relationship, when you move into your world, when you move into your spouse's life or your kid's life or your friend's life, you move not with the goal of getting all your desires met, but you are free to move with the goal of ministry, with the goal of love, having your most fundamental your most important, your most critical needs already met in Christ. And so, of course, you, as any human person does, has a myriad of desires. A desire to be understood by your parents or by your spouse. The desire to be treated kindly by friends and neighbors and co-workers. The desire to be shown compassion when you struggle. Those are all under the big umbrella of desires for your life. And we mentioned the fact that God never promised you that you'll feel all those things or you'll get all those desires met in this life. And for this reason, it's very critical for you to distinguish between your needs and your desires. Like my desire right now for this water that I left on this seat right here. It's not a need, but it's a desire. So I don't need to get angry that I left it there, right? And so Paul gives us some great, great counsel in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Is that easier said than done? Be angry and do not sin. That's tricky to work out and apply to your life. And so, when you feel anger rising in your soul, what do you do with it? Whether it's the kind of anger that is cold and simmering and brooding and often withdraws from another person, or whether your anger is red hot, explosive, and volatile like a volcano. 
when you feel anger rising up from your pit of your stomach, up and through your throat, and it's about to come out and burst out of your lips, what do you do with that anger? Here's what you do based on principles that we discussed last week from Ezekiel chapter 24. Number one, acknowledge to yourself and to God how you feel. Letting yourself experience inwardly the full weight of your emotions. Be careful not to automatically stuff it down. Ignore it. Express it inwardly first. Then subordinate the public expression of your feelings unless unless it advances the overarching goal of ministering to and loving others. You see how this is balanced in its approach? Be first, don't automatically stuff it down, but neither are you to be automatically dumping it out, letting it ooze all over uh, your family, your relationships, those close to you. That is the overarching principle is this. Express anger if it's rooted in the ministry of love. How is this done? Let us look at the, 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 the life of Jesus for a moment. We think when we think of Jesus's anger, we automatically think of Jesus's cleansing of the temple. The money changers, the animal vendors had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. The one place in the temple where the Gentiles could come from all the nations of the world and worship the one true God in Yahweh. So Jesus is angry. Jesus is incensed. But he displays his anger. He goes public with his anger and he takes concrete, decisive and active steps with his anger by turning over the money changers and the benches of those selling doves for a purpose in order to display the kind of love that Yahweh has for the nations, in order to showcase the kind of ministry of glory that Yahweh wanted to have amongst the nations. And so Jesus's act of anger is an act of ministry to the Gentiles. It's an act of love opening up the temple for the Gentiles. Be angry, Jesus, and do not sin. He epitomized that with his life. We may think of the counsel of Paul being impossible. Be angry and do not sin. But on another occasion, Jesus also lived it out. Look at Matthew 23 sometime this afternoon. Jesus seems to me to be very angry with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Read some of the scathing language Jesus uses. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides, you blind men. If my wife was saying those words, I might maybe have a feeling small at that. Even in my small male brain, I think my wife is angry. I think we can discern the same for Jesus. You put a burden on people, Pharisees. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And so Jesus was saying, you put such a burden on people, Pharisees and teachers of the law. I'm truly sick of it. His, and his anger was motivated and driven by his ministry of love towards people that they did not need to live under this kind of burden and under this kind of weight of this pharisaical teaching. So there it is. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 
5. We'll be reading verse 21 through verse 26. We tackled 21 and 22 last week. And verses 23 to 26 offers us two separate scenarios that really apply the principles from verse 21 and 22 that we went over last week. Hear God's word for me and for you. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. And here's where we're going to dig in this week. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Second scenario, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. First scenario seems to me to be talking about a Christian, a brother or sister in Christ, one inside the family of faith. And Jesus's counsel is quite stark and jarring, especially if you actually consider the practicality and the difficulty of actually doing it. Could one truly leave the gift or the sacrifice on the altar in Jerusalem at the temple and then go back all the way to, say, Galilee, hundreds, you know, miles and miles to the north? How could somebody actually put that into practice? And so Jesus is trying to communicate an important principle. Living out the commandment, thou shalt not kill for Jesus, means a deep, costly act of reconciliation with your brother or sister in Christ. And so in these verses, Jesus deepens. Jesus intensifies again what obedience to the sixth commandment really implies. First, he says, if you think you're scot-free because you haven't killed anyone, think again. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then Jesus, I think, anticipates a possible response because Jesus knows and he understands the human condition. Jesus knows someone will say, well, then if I don't say things in anger against those around me, I'm going to assume that I'm good with the Lord. And Jesus again says, not so fast. Your responsibility is not done. Your Christian commitment is not over. Your following in the way of Jesus is more than don't kill is more than just deal with your own sinful anger internally. Obeying this commandment actually contains within it a relational component because Jesus commissions you to be an ambassador of reconciliation. To such a degree, he's calling you to to be an ambassador of reconciliation that Jesus doesn't say, if you don't like someone, just don't say anything at all. Did some of your mothers say this to you? My mother was not alone, I think. If you don't can't say anything at all, don't say it. Just zip your lips. He doesn't say that. That would be easy. Rather, he says, you are to be active in 
reconciliation. In fact, living in the kingdom, following in the way of Christ is actually taking the first step. And notice the radical nature of this reconciliation. It's not that you have something against your brother or your sister in the church. But rather, you recognize that your brother or sister has something against you. Does that not go a further step in us being ambassadors of reconciliation? And so you might expect or you might want or long for Jesus to say that when that person becomes an emotionally mature adult and comes to you with the greatest apology ever known to man, then and only then, go reconcile with your brother or sister. Jesus doesn't say that. That would be like super easy, right? Oh, this is like the best. They humbled themselves. They groveled before my lofty throne. Yes, I will grant you clemency in this very moment. But Jesus puts the onus on you. That no matter whose fault it was, Jesus' words are not, if you have anything. Jesus says, if he has anything, you go and be reconciled. And think about this. This comes from Jesus, who himself did not wait for our apology to come and establish his kingdom. Jesus did not sit in heaven thinking if these people would just get their act together, come and apologize with full admission of their, you know, then I can forgive them. Then I can go to earth and rescue them and redeem them. No, Jesus actively goes to reconcile at a great cost to himself, took the initiative, the first step in our reconciliation, even though it was on us and not on him. And that, Jesus said, is part of living in the kingdom. That effort is on you to reconcile. So much that I don't know about you, I hear Jesus suggesting this and saying this. I don't even want to hear your worship. I don't want to hear your songs. I don't want to hear your prayers. I don't want to see you worshiping God and and raising your hands. Jesus is saying, I don't want to talk to you if you won't talk to your brother or sister in Christ. Even the injured party has the responsibility to reconcile in the church of Christ. This is a kingdom ethic. Jesus is saying, don't bother being involved in sacred acts like baptism, like the Lord's Supper, any acts of worship, if you are unreconciled to a brother or sister. And so I love what Frederick Dale Bruner says. He says, Jesus' ethic is not heroic in being geared to unusual situations. These are normal situations. Feathers get ruffled. Conflict happens. Jesus' ethic is not heroic in being geared to unusual situations, but in asking for what for unusual Christians in all the typical usual situations. And so for Jesus, a byproduct of our worship, of being in the presence of God, is to remind us of right relationship. Not only vertically with God, you might think that Jesus would say, you know, first priority, get right with God, then go reconcile. No, he says, reconcile first, then you can worship and pray rightly. In other words, you're called to a 360 degree practice of reconciliation. Second scenario, Jesus envisions is with those outside the community of faith. 
Jesus in verse 25 says this, Come to terms quickly with your accuser. The NASB translates the phrase, Make friends quickly. Make friends quickly with your opponent. Or be kindly disposed or favorably disposed to your adverse adversary in a lawsuit. And Jesus counsels you with an important word. Quickly. Make friends quickly. Come to terms quickly. Don't wait until it goes to court. Don't wait till the third or fourth meeting with a lawyer because by then it might be too late. And so there's this imperative that Jesus has and Jesus counsels you to do. Take quick action. Henry Barclay says this, when personal relations go wrong, in nine cases out of ten, immediate action will mend them. Take quick action to reconcile. Don't wait. You see, by the time most people are convinced that a conversation is necessary, that a conversation needs to be had, both parties typically have had hurt feelings that have festered for some time. They've been guessing wildly at each other's motivations. And their relationship is about to disintegrate. And so Jesus is enough of a realist that when you, he gives you little steps of obedience, he knows that time is of the essence. Go quickly, reconcile quickly. Don't let the relationship with your accuser, with your opponent, get out of control because you are too cowardly to confront. You, you know, too nice to say anything hard or too slow to begin the process. You think of a divorced couple. How much hardship could be avoided even if they're getting divorced, even if they decided everything. But then say, well, let me make friends quickly. Let me not try to you know, work this out through the fifth and sixth and seventh step. Go quickly. So there it is. Jesus' ethical teaching on anger and his intensifying and deepening application of six of the Ten Commandments. But don't you think as you look over this passage on anger upon reconciliation, that Jesus, if he knew we were already living out the Beatitudes in our life, like he wouldn't even need to say anything about anger, right? I count at least four of the Beatitudes. Look at the first part of Matthew 5. At least four of the Beatitudes, maybe as many as six, that if they were truly lived out would help us live out these verses on anger and reconciliation. For instance, blessed are the merciful. Our mercy to others is really a reflection of God's great mercy to us. And God's mercy is rooted in His love. God's mercy is rooted in His patience. And God's mercy is rooted in a sympathetic understanding to us. And so my question for you this morning is this. Do you consider yourself... A loving person. That's like a trick question. Because like 95 or 98 people out of 100 would say, I am a loving person, right? But the question, the follow-up question would be this. And the following challenge would be this. Then you will be merciful. Because much of our everyday ordinary anger, our, our complaining, our irritability, our verbal shortness with people would be healed and helped if we practice mercy towards those 
around us. You see, the human condition is such that we all think that everyone around us just doesn't get it. Right? Am I the only one? This is the human condition. If everybody around us would get their act together, then I wouldn't have any cause to be angry, right? And so we complain, we nag, we seek to control, we seek to manipulate, we're irritable. And if we would just have mercy on that person as a reflection of God's mercy towards us, God would calm our angry heart. Same with patience. If God had patience with you, who are you to be angry with another? If God had sympathetic understanding towards you in your rebellion against a perfectly loving father, who are you to not sympathize with those around you in being merciful? A merciful spirit in a man, merciful spirit in a woman is an antidote to an angry spirit. And so if you find yourself with what I would call everyday anger, complaining, irritability, verbal shortness, With people, ask yourself whether you are being merciful to that person like God has been merciful towards you. Or take another beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Remember way back when, I know you you remember this perfectly in December. We define meekness as a power subdued or a strength under control. That couldn't possibly have any application to anger in our passage this morning, could it? A meek person gives a measured and poised response, does not lash back with added aggression. A meek person bears the anger of others well. Matthew Henry says this, Commonly, that which provokes anger is anger. As fire kindles fire. You remember this from December? Some of you, yes, I I, I totally remember this, like word by word. Yeah, meekness prevents the violent collision which forces out these sparks and softens at least one side. And so puts a stop to a great deal of mischief for it is the second blow that makes the quarrel. Are you a person who habitually softens one side of the relationship, one side of the quarrel? When there is conflict around you, when the temperature rises in your veins... When the heat gets turned up in the boardroom or in the bedroom, are you able to soften the situation and turn down and dial down the temperature? Or are you the person who turns up the temperature from hot to unbearable, right? A meek person gives a measured reaction in such a way that that releases life, that releases strength, that releases consolation rather than condemnation, complaint, and verbal contempt. You could also look at, blessed are the peacemakers. You could also think of, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If someone is hungering and thirsting for righteousness to such a degree in their heart, soul, mind, and spirit, what kind of uh, you know, you know, anger are they going to have in their life? Severely diminished. Let's think about this last one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Pride is at the heart of conflict, at the heart of our anger problems, at the heart of our interrelational problems. When do parents 
get mad at their children. uh, Kids, hmm? looking at you over here, looking at you over here. Where's some more? I'm looking at you right right here. Second row. Second, third row over here. Children, when do children, when do kids get mad at their parents? Right? Same reason. Everyday anger is often rooted in convenience and ease. Can you please do such and such around the house? Ah! Don't you know that I'm looking at something so important on Facebook? You're interrupting this, right? It's a form of pride rooted in your own convenience and your own ease. You don't want a complicated life. But relationship is complicated. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And theirs is a life that is humble enough to serve without complaining. Humble enough to take the lowest spot without resentment. Humble enough to sacrifice one's life for another without murmuring and bickering and taking a bunch of stuff to the grave. Right? Live out the Beatitudes and you will be living out all the ethical components of Jesus' teaching, including this one on anger. Meditate there. Be fascinated again with Jesus, with His qualities, how He embodies the kingdom in His own person, in His own ministry. Let's pray. Father, we come to You. We confess anger of many, many sorts. The anger that quietly broods and withdraws, complains and is irritable. The kind of anger that explodes unexpectedly around those who we are trying to love. Lord, forgive us. Jesus, thank You for calling us to the mat, for not leaving us as we are, but offering to change us from the inside out. Lord, have Your way with us. Give us Your grace. Give us Your Spirit so that we can apply and be the kind of Christian, to be the kind of Christ follower that You would have us be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.